This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you. Glad you could be here this afternoon. Now, it was back in August that China decided to drop those 80% tariffs on Australian barley, which was great news. Industry really welcoming that. And in fact, some uh, shipments of barley started flowing pretty much straight away. But what happens to all that work that's been done over the years where, well, Australian barley growers are pretty much locked out of China, all that work on diversifying those markets. We'll look into that a little later this hour uh, because uh, a barley delegation has just returned from a trip to well, different parts of North and South America, just sort of spruiking about Australian barley. So we'll see how that trip went just after news headlines at half past 12 today. We'll also take a look at some more analysis around beef prices, cattle prices, where they're going to be heading. We'll do that shortly here on the Country Hour, 6 past 12. Well, as you've been hearing in the news all day, there are some serious fires burning just north of Perth. They're in the city of Wanneroo and the city of Swan. Deputy Premier Rita Safiotti has confirmed at least 10 homes and four sheds have been destroyed. Very high temperatures and strong winds are also making it really hard for the firefighters. Unfortunately, a number of strawberry farms have been lost in the fires. Sheds, tractors and strawberry plants have all been destroyed. Jamie Michael is president of WA's Strawberry Growers Association. He saw the fire start about midday yesterday. Yesterday we were having our uh, end-of-season Christmas party because uh, a lot of our crew are heading off uh, to go and do some other seasonal work over the summer. Um, and there was a plume of smoke that uh, went up just uh, over our back. Uh, it would be the south western corner, probably four odd k's away. So we, we monitored that. That got sort of larger and larger. Luckily for us, it was heading in the other direction, uh, away from us, but not so lucky for some of our guys in Wanneroo. That fire's been burning for roughly 24 hours now. Uh, what have you heard about the impact on some of the, the growers in that Wanneroo area? Uh, so there has been some significant damage. Um, it's a little hard to confirm everything at the moment because not everyone can get back into their properties. There are some roadblocks up, um, but we know that there are at least two growers who, who have essentially lost everything. So sheds, tractors, uh, cropping ground. Um, we're also quite concerned about some other growers uh, because there are power cuts they're not able to activate their irrigation systems if they don't have uh, remote access. Uh, and even if they even if they did, uh, some of those systems are shut down without power and they can't get back into uh, to get water on the crops. So um, still quite concerned. I imagine that makes it really difficult because all of your protection systems are based on having water and then that, that's not there if there's no power. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, look, one, one thing is the fire suppression systems for the building. Um, but the other thing is there's a, a significant investment in that crop in ground. And uh, when you have uh, fire burning uh, next door or even on the property, the temperatures certainly soar and being able to irrigate those crops is hugely important to their survival. 
What can you tell me about the two growers that have suffered damage? Do you know the extent of what they've lost and how they're going? Uh, so it's just reported at this stage. So my partner was on the phone uh, with with one of them just before who said that um, it, it, it had gone through all of his in infrastructure. So he's lost tractors, his shed, um, uh, all of his inventory in addition to uh, in addition to the crop in the ground because that, that's essentially cooked now. Um, so it'll be a, a complete restart for him. Uh, unfortunately, we really feel for him. In that East Wanneroo area, uh, all of those farms are, are family farms. Um, you know, they're, they're mum and dad operations that, that do a lot of the stuff themselves and, you know, basically put everything that they have into it. So it, it is really quite devastating for them. Mm. Do you know how they're going? How they're, I suppose they're still in shock really at this point. Have you, do you know how they're, they're going? Look, uh, I guess the one takeaway is that no nobody has been hurt physically. Um, so that's the, the point that we're sort of focusing on is, uh, you know, um, the industry is quite supportive of each other. You know, everybody's reaching out to these guys to see what they can do to assist. Um, and, and the most important thing is that the, the people themselves, are, uh, you know, haven't been hurt. Um, so that's really what we're focusing on. Mm. Jamie, your farm, it's on Old West Road, so that's sort of to the northeast of where the fire is. It's, you could see it start to the southwest of you, and it's obviously travelled further southwest. The farms that have been damaged, whereabouts are they? Can you tell me more specifically? Uh, yes, yeah, so they're in an area that we would typically call uh, East Wanneroo, so that's uh, Banksia Grove, uh, Karamar, so just to the just to the south of those areas, uh, the sort of land that's bordered by uh, Neves Road, uh, Pinjar Road, uh, Trisha Road, Franklin Road, uh, just in the back there behind the, the housing in Wanneroo. Mm -hmm. And there's more strawberry farms basically in the fire's path at the moment. Uh, yeah, correct. So there's still there's still other farms, not just strawberries, other vegetable farms as well. Uh, some flower production um, that are still at risk. I mean, looking looking over the fence, it's, it's certainly not putting up as much smoke as it was yesterday. So uh, fingers crossed that the um, weather conditions stay favourable for the firefighters to do their job. Mm. What can you see at the moment? You're pretty close to it. What's it like? Coming in through Wanneroo, there was a lot of smoke hanging around. Like I said, we're upwind of it, so it's it's not blowing over this way, but we can still see a significant plume coming up uh, from the area. Um, it's also quite windy outside at the moment. I mean, it has been the last 24 hours, so it's still something that we've got to watch. You went for a drive earlier this morning. What did you see? I couldn't get in, unfortunately. Um, a lot of the roads were blocked to see the guys that I really wanted to, to check on. Um, so I, I guess that says it all. A lot of um, smoke hanging around and, and barricades up. So uh, we're, we're even working at the moment. Uh, one guy's trying to get a generator in. Um, so we're trying to convince the authorities um, to be able to get him back on site to at least get um, power restored. But, uh, you know, I guess they also have to do what's, what's in the interest of the safety of people that want to go in. So... Mm. Um, there's not, not a whole lot to see um, because we can't get in there. The, the point of the strawberry season at the moment, you're having your Christmas party when this fire started because it's the end of towards the end of the season for you. Is that the case for most growers? They're sort of towards the, the, the end of the season? Yeah, that's right. Um, for, so for this area, we are right at the tail end of the season. 
Um, but there's still, you know, a lot of uh, a good portion of the plants that are in the ground still get kept over to uh, the early season for next year. So that's basically the, um, you know, the early season income uh, for all of these guys for next year that they need to get to get their following season started. So in terms in terms of what it will do to the fruit market, there'll be some impact uh, on pricing. Um, I don't think there'll be a really dramatic impact but it's certainly a major setback. Um, it'll be a major setback for the guys for next season. Yeah, it is that initial loss of, of the fruit and, of course, all the infrastructure on the farm, but then it really flows through, doesn't it, if the plants that are essential for next year have also been lost. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess we, we just really need to wait and see until people can get, get back on farm and for power to be restored um, to really see what the effect of that will be. Bullsbrook-based strawberry grower and president of the Strawberry Growers Association of WA, Jamie Michael, with the Joe Prendergast. 14 past 12, or clearly the bushfire season has started here in Western Australia. And the Esperance Bushfire Brigades and the local Shire are developing a checklist to help farmers and workers ensure they're covered by insurance when helping fight fires. Now, it's hoped the checklist will clarify what sort of training seasonal workers might have to do to be compliant with the law and covered by insurance. Chief Bushfire Control Officer Phil Longmire hopes it will also protect employers and the Shire. Since there's been higher pressure on from sort of the WorkSafe side and our liabilities, we're just trying to make sure that farmers are aware of their staff training and required liabilities. So we're trying to make it in an achievable order because uh, an area like Esperance has a lot of transient staff coming in uh, that we can train them to be safe within that environment and then upskill them from there if they need to be uh, utilised to higher level fires where you go off farm. Basically, if I'm a farmer and I'm hiring seasonal workers who may not be from this area, there's going to be certain things that those workers have to do if they want to help out on a fire ground. Uh, yes, they'll have to be upskilled to, but the first level is within their own environment and then to make sure that they are covered when they attend a fire and they are skilled appropriately. I think that's just as important. It's not just about liability. It's about making sure that they go safely to a uh, fire ground. How onerous is this training on on the farmer and and the seasonal worker? Like how many days of training would would the most basic thing on the checklist be? The the basic level actually isn't that hard to achieve. It's more about making sure that uh, they're signed off in certain competencies. And a lot of them Um, are being created uh, so that it is achievable in an effective timeline. Part of what we're trying to do is make it a standard platform so that it it can be continually improved. Right. So do you mean like instead of each each farmer doing their own thing and kind of setting their own provisions of what what their seasonal workers need to be able to do, it's standardised across the region? Yeah, it can still be done on farm and some of uh, the higher level stuff needs to be done at the appropriate venue if you're going to use local government appliances. But the whole idea of this is to keep it simplistic to be able to effectively train. 
So previously, were seasonal workers required to do any specific training if they if they they were going to go to a fire or if there was a fire on their farm? Look, there's been lots of work done uh, and very effectively. Will Carmody put together his seasonal worker training, and we've had um, a lot of the brigades do their own training. I guess what we're trying to do is take all that um, good information that's already been done and probably just formalise it so that it meets um, it meets the standard that will cover us for, you know, insurance really. You know, we have people coming into the region across a quite a wide window, so we need to uh, try and standardise it so that we can get them up to speed reasonably quickly and safely. Esperance Chief Bushfire Control Officer Phil Longmire speaking to Emily Smith about a checklist being developed that should help farmers and workers ensure they're covered by insurance when helping fight fires. Now, that checklist is being trialled by a few Esperance brigades, but it won't be finalised and fully rolled out across the whole region until sort of um, sometime next year. In response to those fires that are are currently burning some serious fires burning just north of Perth and the Deputy Premier Rita Safiotti confirming at least 10 homes and four sheds have now been destroyed. And you heard from Jamie Michael, President of WA Strawberry Growers Association, just talking about the uh, strawberry growers at this stage that have been affected. In response to that, Bob Ifler on the text says, a lot of the fires are deliberately lit. The penalties need to be dramatically increased. A minimum penalty should be at least 20 years. My heart goes out to those who've lost property. Thank you for that, Bob. The text is 0448 922 604. 18 past 12. part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. A lack of accommodation is still making it difficult for some farmers trying to attract workers. Stuart Willis is the manager of Harvest Trail Services in the southwest. He says this year there's certainly been a significant increase in the number of backpackers coming to Western Australia looking for work. But the problem is, where do they stay? The numbers have certainly returned back to uh, sort of those pre pre-COVID levels, which is around that sort of 130, 140,000 uh, number. It's probably around that 40 to 50,000 last year that would have been in in Australia. So that's Australia-wide. So yeah, a big increase. So definitely back to, back to those uh, good old days, shall we speak. And is there much interest from those backpackers for work in WA? Yes, there's a lot. Um, we're seeing a lot of a lot coming across. Um, oh, a lot, sorry, from the north that have that are coming down um, for that sort of cooler climate. And obviously, we've got um, a lot of work hopefully coming up. Well, now all the way through with with various um, uh, stone fruits and the cherries and the blueberries and things like that, and and thinning. And then obviously come January, February or December, January, February, the vintage. So yeah, many are coming down to this southwest region. So there's obviously been an increase in the number of backpackers, but is there enough work available for them? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, certainly, we're getting a lot of inquiries from from the backpackers uh, coming through, and it seems to be um, there isn't a great deal of work out there, um, or the work that's available uh, accommodation seems to be one of the biggest issues of actually um, being able to find a suitable accommodation to fill those roles. So. Um, with the 
horticultural side and the viticultural a lot of the palm workers are filling um some of those what normally would be you know short-term casual roles but we're expecting a, a big influx of, of job requirements coming through uh, as the cherry season kicks off but like i say it's it's it, our biggest issue is trying to get accommodation for these people who, who do want to work in these regional areas for those who can't get accommodation though what does that mean for them yeah, it's a it's a good question. I think um, a lot of them are, are happy to go to uh, areas and, and, and work. Many of them have said they're sort of happy to sleep in their cars, try and use the local town facilities to, you know, to, to use for showers and things. But uh, that can be the local rec centre, what have you, but that can be proved quite expensive. Um, so, yeah, they're just trying to get through the best they can, I suppose. Um, some of the caravan sites uh, are filling up rapidly and obviously coming into what is a busy touristy season with Christmas upon us, that's even going to be a bit more of a tighter squeeze. So what sort of solutions are there to the issues of accommodation and, well, yeah, finding work for these backpackers? Yeah, that's a that's a million dollar question, I suppose. Being that every, you know, there's just there's just not enough housing, or uh, the the backpackers are full. I, I don't really know what the answer is. I mean, a lot of the growers have been fantastic in trying to open up their farms to accommodate them, but they just don't have the you know the showers and the toilets and things on on farm. Uh, whether the shires uh, can can help in any way, I mean, I remember back in in the COVID days. I know a lot of the shires, more in the wheat belt regions, were certainly open themselves up the you know the footy oval to to accommodate people who couldn't couldn't move on um, and open up those services to them but um, I really don't know what what the answer is to try and help find accommodation for these backpackers uh, they are getting moved on a lot of them from areas so that that is a challenge so a lot of them are just moving from day to day around you know trying to trying to find work and and what have you. Stuart Willis, he's the manager for Harvest Trail Services for the South West. He was speaking to Sophie Johnson. 23 past 12 here on the Country Hour, not far away from an update from the newsroom. Obviously the very latest on those fires burning just north of Perth. Before that though, Rabobank's latest outlook report predicts things might be looking up for Australia's beef producers next year. Senior analyst Angus Skidley-Baird says that's partly because of what's likely to happen in the Northern Hemisphere in 2024. It's sort of a continuing trend and we're sort of calling it almost two separate markets in that global space. We've got contracting production in the northern hemisphere and when we say northern hemisphere effectively the us and canada or north america and and europe um and then increasing production in the southern hemisphere so the south americas and the australian uh leading that so sort of two different forces at play there and then we've also got uh very strong demand or continuing strong demand in in north america and then supply chain congestion and soft weak demand in that asian market as well so sort of two separate markets at play here and it's very interesting to watch you know the strength of that u.s north american market and all the other markets that are sending product into asia with that soft consumer demand and increasing production experiencing very different pricing from a market point of view so if we look at the southern hemisphere and and for our australian producers as well what are you really expecting to play out in the coming quarter 
in in this latest beef quarterly, we're looking at not only what's happening this quarter, but also projecting through into what the next 12 months are going to look like. And we think next 12 months are going to f- be fairly similar to what we've seen this year and, and in this last quarter of the year, in the sense that we'll continue to see contraction in that North American US space. We'll continue to see increased production in the Australia and Brazil space. And netting those two out, it's going to be close to line ball. Uh, we think this year there might have been maybe a 1% contraction in, in that balance. Um, next year, it's going to be close to line ball again. So that's a positive from our point of view in the sense that there's not a growth in beef production out there. When you look at it on a trade point of view, though, declining production in the US means less exports out of the US into some of those Asian markets, the Japan, South Korea, China, etc., which are key markets for us. Our growing production will potentially fill some of those gaps that are created um, as a result of that US we are expecting Chinese imports to increase next year a little bit. Uh, we think they were up about 3% this year. We're expecting maybe 5% next year. So on balance, it looks like it's going to be a similar sort of year in terms of that trade. Um, we still have to see how a few things play out, and in particular how that, that, China, that Asian consumer sort of responds to a slower economic environment and whether that demand has an opportunity to grow and suck some of that product through the supply chain. Um, because at the moment it's very soft. Yeah, well, how likely do you think it is demand will grow? What factors need to line up for that to happen? Yeah, and and, and really we're looking at that... Um that Chinese economy is the the major engine room uh, for that does have an impact on global trade and a lot of those other Asian economies as well. Um, some of the reports that we saw out of things like Singles Day in the last week or so, uh, you know, the Alibaba's and JD.com's um, not reporting the the overall sales figures sort of give us an indication that maybe they're not as strong as what they have been in the past. Um, most of the commentary coming back through our channels and analysts is suggesting that yeah. It's just, it's weaker. It it is there, but it's just not that that growth or that strength that um, that we have seen in the past. So, we're probably looking at a much more measured response or measured recovery rather than suddenly next year it's going to be hugely strong again. Angus Gidleybed, if we can package this all up in a nice, neat bow for the producers and and consumers listening as well, what does this all mean for the Aussie? market and industry going forward in the next 12 months? Yeah, from a beef point of view, it, it's definitely positive, um, positive upside, not not like major, you know, leaps forward and sudden returns to record prices or anything like that. But it's it's definitely positive in the sense that we've got we've got an increasing production base here. Um, we've got to find a home for it. At the moment, we're coming up against resistance with full supply chains and slow demand in, in those Asian economies. We expect that will slowly uh, clear as we progress into next year. So that's going to uh, give us better opportunity to send that increasing volume into that market, particularly, um, or not only with uh, the general sort of demand in that market improving, but also with the US contracting in terms of some of the volumes that they're sending into that market. I think their their exports this year are down 14 or 16% at the moment. So, um, you know, if that continues, that gives us a bit more opportunity uh, into those markets. So it's a, it's a positive upside, um, but it's just not a huge leap forward. So I, I think... Once we get over some of this uncertainty that's really plaguing our market at the moment with the, the producer sentiment, um, particularly with some of the seasonal outlooks, etc., once we move through that, you know, and in increasing that demand or that lift, slight lift in demand in those Asian countries, the reduction in the US, it'll just allow the, the market to rebalance itself. And, and I think that'll lead to an increase in prices. 
Rabobank Senior Analyst Angus Gidley-Baird speaking to Lara Webster. 28 past 12 here on the Country Hour and with an update from the newsroom. Here's Jonathan Hopper. Good afternoon, Belinda. Department of Fire and Emergency Services Commissioner Darren Clem says it'll be some time before a blaze burning across Perth's north is brought fully under control. At least 10 homes have been confirmed destroyed after the fire ravaged through several suburbs, including Wanneroo, Tapping and Banksia Grove. It was the first reported late yesterday morning and more than 120 firefighters are still working to strengthen containment lines and extinguish flames. Goldfields Air Services has announced the closure of its Jandicott Bay next month. The Charter Airline and Flight School, known locally as GAS, was founded in Kalgoorlie, Boulder in 1982. In a statement, the airline said it was no longer financially viable for the Chandicott base to continue operating. And test contenders Marcus Harris, Cameron Bancroft and Matt Renshaw have been named in the Prime Minister's 11 for next month's match against Pakistan in Canberra. The trio are the leading candidates to replace Dave Warner in the Australian team when he retires from test cricket early next year. Thanks, Belinda. Jonathan, thank you so much for that update. It is 29 past 12 here on The Country Hour. Still to come, we'll head off to Mount Barker just before one o'clock to get the results of today's cattle market. We'll look at all the work that's been done by the Australian barley industry and representatives uh, still trying to work on diversifying different markets. I know China's back open again. The tariffs have been removed and those shipments are going into China again, which is such a huge market. But there's been a lot of work done over the last few years exploring new market opportunities. So we'll look into sort of parts of North and South America and what sort of opportunities there might be for Bali today and into the future. First, though, it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Joey Rawson with you this afternoon. Uh, Joey, let's take a look at this trough that's just hanging around and, well, influencing pretty much all of the state. We'll start in the Southwest Land Division. What what can you see? So, um, yeah, this trough uh, basically extends from uh, the Western Pilbara down the West Coast. So it's actually over land. It's through the Gascoigne and then it moves offshore as you get to around Lanceland. So um, places um, on the western side of this trough are certainly uh, cooler because they're getting the uh, the sea surface temperature. So places like Geraldton and Lanceland are a little bit cooler and Carnarvon. Um, but on the other side of the trough, um, it's um, getting these east-northeast winds that are really warm or we could say hot, Linda, and quite dry. And that trough remains um, offshore, especially through the low west and southwest, for uh, a number of days. And, and it doesn't start to move across the southwest coast uh, until sometime on Monday is what our models are saying. So um, then it'll move uh, just slowly um, through um, the southwest land division, taking that cooler air that's on the western side of that uh, trough blender. So... Um, the things that are occurring because of that trough is really hot conditions, especially through the lower west and southwest. So we, we do have a heat wave warning um, that is going at the moment. Um, we have these temperatures near 40 and these really dry conditions um, persisting. So um, as you know, the, that's not great for the fire conditions, especially for the fire near Wanneroo. And um, we do see a little bit of easing with the winds uh, with that trough, especially this afternoon, Uh, um, but it certainly the winds will start freshening again as we get into the weekend. So, 
yeah, the trough is causing hot, dry, poor fire weather conditions and also um, some thunderstorm activity through uh, most of the western districts as well, Belinda. And Joe, are you still expecting those conditions to sort of hang around until sort of Monday, Tuesday of next week? Yeah, it's around Monday that we're we're seeing things changing or moving um, out to the east. So yeah, it's certainly around that, that Monday and that's firming up a little bit as we get closer to that time. But it's no guarantee still, it's just a, a high probability that that trough will um, start moving inland and, and bringing those milder conditions to you know the lower west and, and southwest of the state. All right, let's look into northern and eastern parts. Yeah, so over the Kimberley, uh, we're going to have these thunderstorms um, developing in the afternoon and extending through the evening, and they're moving quite slow. So if you do get a thunderstorm, there's a fair bit of rain out of it just because of its slow movement. So um, there's a potential to get uh, around 20 to up to 40 millimetres with those storms, but they're quite isolated in nature. So some places will get it and and lots of other places won't. But we've had even some bigger rainfall observations, I think around the 80 millimetre mark with a storm that just didn't move and and just dumped rain over one spot. So um, that's going to continue well and truly into next week. There's not much change there. And over the Pilbara, we're also expecting thunderstorms, but not as much rain, if any, over the Pilbara and stretching down into the Gascoyne. It's just too hot underneath and too dry, Belinda. And then for this afternoon, what's on the warning list? Uh, we've got the heatwave warning for the, the low west and the southwest, and we've got the fire weather warning uh, for the low west inland, so for the Perth Hills, and also the midwest inland. Uh, fire weather districts blender. Thank you, Joey. Appreciate that. 26 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Richard Hudson in the studio now. And Richard, there has been a little bit of rain about in parts of the north. Yeah, same story as yesterday, really. It's only in the Kimberley. Fitzroy Crossing had five, Fossil Down seven, Lansdowne 12, Margaret River at the airstrip there 24, Mount Amherst 18, Mullabulla 9, Mount House 9. Old Mornington Homestead and Mount Barnett had seven mils and Siddons Creek 29. No rain recorded anywhere else in WA, not a drop. ABC Radio, Harvest Ban Information. Yeah, due to the risk of fire, a number of shires have imposed a harvest ban and that includes the use of any equipment that could potentially start a fire. So that includes Boddington, Boyup Brook, Chittering, Quinana Nanup, Rockingham, Serpentine, Jarrodale and Swan. And just a reminder, the only way to get in touch with us as far as harvest bans goes is through the harvest ban email. We're not doing it through text. It becomes way too complex over the summer period. And again, a reminder, the Country Hour is the only ABC program to be announcing the harvest ban. So the deadline for getting those emails in to each of the shires is 11.30. Can you make up your mind before 11.30? Number of fires around in uh, Western Australia at the moment in the shires of Broome, Ashburton, Dundas, Murray, Coburn, the town of Port Hedland, they're all at an advice level. But as you've been mentioning, Bell, a couple just north of Perth in that shire of Wanneroo and the city of Swan there, one's at an emergency warning level and one's at a watch and act. I won't go through the details of those. 
because the people affected in that area are not actually listening to the country hour. But uh, because of the extreme fire danger today, a number of shires throughout Western Australia have got a total fire ban in place. Uh, so this is for the in the Midwest and Wheatbelt. That includes Carnamar, Greater Geraldton, Minganew, Morrawar, Perenjury, Three Springs, 2J. In the Perth metropolitan region, Armadale, Chittering, Gingin, Gosnells, Calamunda, Mundaring, Serpentine, Jaredale, Swan, 2J and Wanneroo as well. And then in the southwest region, Murray. So during a total fire ban, you can't do anything that could potentially start a fire, no use of solid fuel barbecues and no grinding, welding, gas cutting, all those sorts of things. If you're not sure if your shire has a ban in place, uh, just do a search for emergency and WA. You'll find it all there. Great. Thanks, Richard. 23 to 1 o'clock. Off to Mount Barker just before the news at 1 today, checking out the yarding and the prices at the Mount Barker cattle market. First, though, as you know, Australian barley exports are flowing again to China following China's recent decision to drop 80% tariffs on Australian barley. But that doesn't mean the industry has closed the door on market diversity. In fact, an industry delegation has just returned from a trip to North and South America, spruiking the quality, the value and the functionality of Australian malting barley. Mary Rains is the market's manager lead for AGIC. That's the Australian Export Grains Innovation Centre. She was on the trip. Mary, where did you go? We actually headed into Chile. Uh, We visited some of the leading brewers there, um, malting companies as well. From there, we headed over to Peru. We visited some of the leading brewing companies there. And like Lima's interesting, their annual rainfall, or Peru, I should say, annual rainfall is 30 millimetres per year. They have grey skies for 30% of the time. So a lot of their water comes in off the Andes. So we visited the one of the largest brewing companies who are actually importing Australian malt barley. And they're also importing Australian malting barley. And they've been able to actually, when they first malted Australian barley, they didn't get to the quality that they required that was equivalent to the Australian exports of malt. But then they were able to, you know, tweak their science in their laboratories and actually got the same quality of malted barley that Australia was exporting. When we were there, they were actually also brewing with Australian barley in their beer. So that was really terrific for our Australian breeders to be part of that process and see the demand that's required and hear what the quality of Australian malting barley and malt barley gives to the brewers and then also to see the final product of Australian barley being produced into beer into um, Peru. So from Chile, we headed down to Brazil. Now, Brazil's the powerhouse. It's that big agricultural country it's like texas everything is big in brazil so it was really terrific to get into brazil we actually export malt so the finished process the uh, a byproduct like of barley malt into brazil we actually don't have market access for australian barley like malting into brazil so we were there very fortunate to be able to visit both the malting companies and breweries in brazil even though we're not exporting malting barley currently to brazil In Brazil, we identified that they have a malt demand around that 1.6 million metric tonnes. They have a domestic malt capacity around 960,000 tonnes. They have a domestic malting production 
around that 450,000 tonnes. So you can already see there's a large market gap difference of what their domestic malt production is to the domestic demand to produce the beer that's required uh, for that market that they're producing and exporting into. So they have an import demand around 790,000 tonnes of malting barley alone annually. What is this market worth to Australia, the Australian barley industry? Well, uh, in terms of, Mark, we can be part of that 790,000 tonne market if we are able to gain market access for malting. We're very good, very strong in their malt demand. So Brazil have been importing malt from Australia for over the last uh, three years. But that, that, that big market for Brazil is worth that around, as I say, around that 790,000 tonnes. What we identified and what Australia identified, because a lot of this work has come out about um, how Australia wants market diversity and not have the reliance on one super large market. So that's where this work has come out of. I should have said that at the start, Belinda. <laughs> it's all about market diversity. But what we identified when we were in Central and South America is they, exact, they want exactly the same aspects. They want to have market diversity away from Argentina, who were their traditional suppliers. So they want to have market diversity options. So we know that into Brazil that they are heavily reliant on the Argentinian market. They have imported grain from France. Uh, we have identified that, and they've said themselves, it's actually a little bit more expensive to get grain out of Canada. So very similar to Australia, these South American and North American countries want market diversity, which is terrific. Mary, I remember at the time when Australia was locked out practically locked out of the Chinese barley market and we spoke to the state's main grain handler, the CBH Group, about the exciting news of um, getting barley shipments into Mexico for their, for their beer uh, requirements. Did you get a chance to visit Mexico? What's, what's the lay of the land with uh, our barley going into Mexico? We were very, you're, Belinda, we were very fortunate. Um, after Brazil, we flew into, into Mexico and we were hosted there by the Australian government. We were we hosted a, vet, a seminar, so AGIC with Grains Australia Investment hosted a seminar in Monterey. Monterey is where um, Heineken have their biggest brewery, their most and most possible brewery in the world is located at Monterey, and they were there saying we are actually brewing with Australian barley now. And then we were very fortunate to travel into the production, the barley production region of Mexico. You know, that's where we've got our market insights that. They're also um, growing barley, yielding about 2.25 tonnes on dry land, 6.5 tonnes on on irrigation. But we also visited Heineken's largest brewery, Malting House in Mexico. We walked in there with the Australian barley breeders and uh, they were actually building uh, malting Australian barley at the time in the germination bed when we were there. So it was really beautiful to see that there's still shipments of Australian barley. They've said to us it yields better in compared to their domestic market. It yields better than compared to the European grain. It yields better compared to um, some of the North American varieties as well. They're really happy with it. So they can see the economical value in using Australian barley in their malt house. Mm. And, and what's this market worth or how much is going into this Mexican market? So this Mexican market, it's around it, – up to about 450,000 tonnes of malting barley. So that's their, that's what we see Australia can be part of and that will be in competition from US and Canada that do have good agreements with Mexico. But 
still it's a market diversity. Mexico is the largest producer of beer in that North American market and one of the biggest exporters. So if we get Mexico a market, we have market access for about 450,000 tonnes into Mexico. We'll, if we get around 60% of that, I think we're already exporting over a quarter of that market at the moment. So that's that's great for the Australian grain grower to have that 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 those options. And also to have those big breweries really wanting Australian barley varieties. Now, as as you know, in August, China dropped those tariffs, those 80% tariffs on Australian <laughs> barley. The price of barley just shot up on the back of that news and we've already had some shipments flowing to China. What happens now to markets like this one that you've been working on over the last few years um, while we've been shut out of China, do, do we are we able to maintain or keep working on those markets, or does everything start going back to China? <laughs> well, the grain, the grain AGIC, uh, Grains Australia, and even the grain traders have invested a significant amount of money and resources and to build these uh, markets across South and Central America and North America. It will come down to, we all know that it might come down to the bottom line. Well, that's of, right, uh, though, isn't it? Well, don't we just sell but, to whoever's going to pay the most? And... Uh, but, but I think I think um, the, the trade has said we, we've invested a lot of resources. We know that they're buying. Uh, they want diversity. Australia's got diversity. We know that their sustainability is a large part of all these markets. We know that our quality is actually providing the yield in the brew house and the malt houses. So, you know, who knows where it will go, but... We're in South America and North America after Australian barley had already been starting to flow back into China. So that was our, we're here, we're, we're going to show you what we've got. This is the quality that you can get out of Australian barley and this is the value you can make in your brew houses and malt houses. And we're here post the gates opening up to China again. Mm. Good to talk to you, Mary. Thank you so much. Lovely. Okay. Thanks, Belinda. Mary Rains from AGIC and uh, telling you all about her trip, recent trip last month to, what, Chile, Peru, Brazil, Mexico. It sounds quite fabulous, doesn't it? 14 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And a Western Australian business that's developed a much quicker way to find out if there's gold in soil samples has just been named Innovator of the Year. The technology is called Detect Ore and was developed by the CSIRO. But it's now in the hands of a WA company called Portable PPB. Managing Director Simon Bolster says this is quite a significant breakthrough for the mining industry because saving time saves money. Yeah, it's, it's technology which was first invented by the, within the CSIRO by Dr Mel Linton. It fills a gap in the industry uh, in terms of enabling geologists to be able to collect samples and get answers out in the field in the parts per billion level within a short space of time, down to as little as eight hours. That sounds phenomenal. I mean, can you explain to us what it would take without this kind of technology, what it's taking companies now? Yeah, it depends on how remote they are, but essentially the standard practice is that you collect a sample, you package them up, you then have to ship them off to the lab. In the bus phases, the labs maybe will give you one week turnaround. So currently it's one week or two weeks turnaround. In a boom phase, it can be three months. Sometimes in some parts of the world, it's out to six months. It's linked up with, a, with an instrument that's been in the, instrument, in the industry for about 15 years or so. It's something called a portable, portable XRF. There's many gold companies that have them. 
but they haven't been possible to do low-level gold. It's a combination of the physics and also the nuggety nature of gold. And through the CSIRO invented technology, the process has been, been developed that allows you to do that now so that we can get down into the parts per billion level uh, instead of parts per million, and we do away with the nuggety effect as well. And I understand you've been here in the goldfields doing some, some testing? Yeah, we've done quite a lot of tr- testing. Uh, we secured the technology from CSIRO uh, just over five years ago now. We've been out here running trials. We've ended up testing on about 30,000 samples pre, pre-commercial release, um, which are out of the goldfields, but also globally. Anywhere that has problems with getting access to labs or issues around uh, turnaround times with labs or lack of labs, it has a, a really strong application. And of course, the goldfields has generated a lot of world-class geologists and West Australia is one of the global hubs of that. And it means that we've got Australian companies and Australian trained personnel that have gone out to the world. And therefore, then it's, yeah, it's opening up a global market for us. But there's also a lot of education that has to go into it as well. It's about getting out and, and teaching people that, look, it's more than just about getting a gold result. It's, it's actually a whole change in workflows. Because when you start getting daily results, it means then that you have to think about, you can then start to change the workflows. You can do something which we call reactive sampling, which means that you can you react to the results on a daily basis. So you start doing infill and closing up programs and defining targets very easily. In terms of costs, it's about the same cost as sending it to the lab. And what I normally say when people say, well, look, I could just send it to the lab. And then I say, well, with respect, you're missing the point here. It's around um, saving time. Time is money in this industry. It costs a million dollars a year to run a junior company. That's $3,000 a day when you're waiting for assays. And then if you've got to mobilize and demobilize, all of that comes at a cost. So when there's less money around, and most of the juniors I've been talking to here, they're all lamenting on the fact that money's going into battery metals and less money is available for gold. It means that those times you've got to be even more careful about how you spend the money. It's not that there's no money around, it's just that the money that's going into the gold industry will go into those who are obviously demonstrating that they can explore and they are exploring. And therefore then, if you can be more efficient, then you're a more compelling investment proposition. So do you ever feel that this will be commonplace in the industry or will there always be a a spot for traditional labs? There will still be a spot for traditional labs um, because our process is not JORC compliant or NI43101 compliant from from a resource point of view. However, um, for soil sampling, you don't need to be you don't need to have that level of uh, sign-off, I suppose, in terms of doing a resource estimate. Simon Bolster, he's from Portable PPB, and he was speaking to Tara DeLangraft. The company has just been named WA Innovator of the Year. Nine minutes to one. The WA state government has invested $5 million into a Pilbara magnesium company. Ecomag produces magnesium salts using waste from salt ponds in Caratha, which are used in pharmaceuticals, foods and fire-resistant products. And as part of the state's investment attraction fund, it's going to receive $1 million each year over the next five years. Ecomag CEO Tony Crimmins is not surprised by the funding announcement. 
the project has a natural attraction toward it because we are taking a beautiful um, element called the magnesium uh, from a waste stream and we're turning it into not only a raw resource product as magnesium oxide, but we're hoping to do more with it downstream and attract uh, much more businesses to what we're doing and using magnesium and to sell it. What does a million dollars a year and, you know, over the next five years do for a company like Ecomag and, and your project out there in Karatha? The, the money is important, uh, but the most important thing is the recognition that we've got from the WA government that the project that we're doing is, is important. And that attracts other money uh, that comes into uh, the company. Uh, the money that we need to attract uh, over the uh, period of time is up to 120 million. We've got the WA government providing some money for that work we need to do. Uh, we've also got previous federal money for that as well. We're very thankful uh, for what they've done. But there's the other money that follows through and everyone looks to see whether the WA government have given it the tick. And this, uh, uh, this uh, yes from the WA government will help us. So does the $5 million go into anything in particular, anything specific? Look, it goes specifically into the project in Karatha. So it is used to spend on things such as uh, we've got an engineering uh, feed, what's called a feed uh, design. So the final plant uh, is fully engineered and we've got the engineering company working with us and they've started work already and we should have that finished by March. And that, that shows everyone the blueprint of how it's actually built. Uh, in the meantime, we've also got to do things like discharges. We've also got to do things like building ponds around the area and also building roads, uh, which are important to get into the site. It's not a very long road, but it is a road we've still got to build to get into there. Building the actual plant and the and the site area doesn't really take that long, uh, uh, Michelle. It's a very short process. So the project from go to woe, when we get the approvals and we start building it, is around about uh, 18 months. So we, we assume that from March, um, once the feed study's done, it's 18 months from there that we'll have the production underway. Tony Crimmins, the CEO of Ecomag with Michelle Stanley. Six to one, some new money is up for grabs for biosecurity research projects that could benefit WA's cattle industry. Debbie Dowden is chair of the WA Cattle Industry Funding Scheme. She says grants of up to $150,000 per year are on offer for research projects to improve productivity and profitability in the cattle industry. So we're hoping to get applications for projects that will make a big difference in the future of the cattle industry in WA. And I know it is called a biosecurity research and development project, but the applications don't need to be limited to biosecurity. They could be to do with uh, cattle welfare or um, live export markets or a number of other things that will affect the cattle industry in Western Australia going forward. And we're hoping that we can encourage applications from universities, researchers, grower groups, um, anybody who's really involved in the cattle industry and wants to see the industry benefit and really surge forward and find those new cutting-edge frontiers that we're always looking for. Mm. So what sort of projects are you anticipating these grants will go towards? I imagine that there's probability they'll be tended towards biosecurity, so like disease prevention, um, because we are the cattle industry funding scheme and we do support biosecurity in Western Australia. 
But if a project comes across our desk that also looks as though it could be really transformative for the cattle industry, and it could be to do with um, something unrelated to biosecurity, but that involves that that would improve the profitability of the cattle industry. What have some of the past recipients done? Has that made a difference? Well, we've got some projects we're currently funding at the moment, and one of them is to looking at tick-borne disease in cattle, and the other one is to look at the effect of estrogenic clovers on pregnant cattle. We're still waiting for the results of those projects. They're ongoing, but results of both projects look very interesting and will be of great importance to producers who are affected either by ticks or by the estrogenic clovers. And in the past, we've supported different R&D projects, and you can see a list of them on the Cattle Industry Funding Scheme website. We're also supporting one at the moment to do with trying to develop early detection for bovine yoni's disease in Western Australia, and that would be a real game changer with the way BJD is managed in Western Australian cattle herds. Chair of the WA Cattle Industry Funding Scheme, Debbie Dowden, speaking to Kate Forrester about biosecurity research and development grants for the WA cattle industry. Expressions of interest applications are now open and close on the 15th of January. You can find more information about applying for the grants on the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development website. Two minutes to one to the markets and about 1,500 head of cattle sold at the Mount Barker sale yards this morning. So that's about 430 more than last week. The sale is still going, but Tracy Kilner has a summary of the prices so far. Hi, Tracy. An excellent run of wiener calves dominated the numbers. Wiener steers sold at 270 cents with competition lacking with one feeder buyer not in attendance while the present buyers were selective on weights and types. Heifers gained with increased buyer interest selling to 190 cents for wieners and 182 cents for the yearling heifers. Heavy cows and bulls gained marginally with processor demand. The lightweight wiener steers sold to 270 cents while the heavier weights made from 226 to 252 cents a kilo. Wiener heifers continued to gain, returning 140 to 190 cents. Yearling steers sold from 180 to 220 cents, remaining mainly firm. Yearling heifers um, went the same way, selling from 128 to 182 cents a kilo. A quality run of grown steers gained, returning 178 to 192 cents a kilo. Heavy cows sold from 122 to 134, while the store cows returned 72 to 78 cents a kilo. Heavy bulls made from 98 cents for the heaviest, up to 132 cents, while the lighter weight bullies sold from 134 to 140 cents a kilo. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you for that. Tracy Kilner going through the details at the Mount Barker cattle market today. Great to talk to you today. The news is next. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.